In today's episode of The Football Story, we interview the voice of Australian football. We are just as excited as you all are to interview the man behind the microphone, Simon Hill. We hope you enjoy this exclusive interview. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by the man who can only be described as the voice of Australian football, Simon Hill. Simon, it's an honour for us to be speaking to you. How have you been coping in this unprecedented year? I'm sure you're glad that football is back up and running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it took a while, didn't it? Certainly in Australia, but uh, well, overseas as well, but uh, specifically here. So it's great our football back and uh, Obviously, now that the A-League season is done and dusted, looking forward to, uh, to watching the Premier League as well when it uh, kicks off this weekend. Absolutely. Um, Simon, we obviously know you, you grew up in, in England. Um, I guess, how were you introduced to football? Uh, was that at a young age? Was that through your family? Um, I guess, where did your love for the game kind of start? Yeah, probably uh, in the womb, I guess. <laughs> My dad is a big Man City fan, so he'd watched City all his life. Uh, my granddad was a City fan, he's no longer with us uh, all his life. And my great granddad played for Manchester City when, before they were even known as Manchester City in the 1890s, they were called Hardwick FC. So this is like a family heirloom that's uh, passed down from generation to generation. So my dad. Uh, took me to my first game when I was uh, about six years old, um, Man City against Ipswich. I still remember it, 1973, long before either of you were even thought of. Um, and that was it. That was, uh, you know, I didn't choose my team. It was given to me. Um, enrolled as a junior blue when I was six or seven. And uh, yeah, that was it. It was a lifelong love affair. So uh, all, all down to, to family and obviously the area of, the world that I grew up in because, you know, football in, in Manchester is, is everything. Yeah, for sure. What was it like growing up and supporting Manchester City in that time? <laughs> well, a lot of people say, you know, oh, it must have been terrible when you were growing up because City were, were dreadful. But actually in the 70s, uh, for a long time in the 70s, City were the better team uh, than United. We challenged for the league championship, uh, particularly in 76, 77, which I'm, I'm old enough to remember. Um, and up until the early 80s, we had a pretty good side. Um, it was really 82, 83 that it started going all a bit downhill. Uh, we got relegated against Luton in final game in 1983, which again, I, I remember because I was there. Uh, and then we sort of became a bit of a yo-yo club, you know, between the first and second divisions, uh, culminating in uh, the nadir of the club, really, in the late 90s when we went down to the third tier. So by then, of course, United star had risen a lot under Sir Alex Ferguson. They were winning trophies left, right and centre. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a myth to say that I grew up in an era when, you know, City were, were very much the downtrodden neighbours because for the first 10 years or so of, of my watching football, certainly at Main Road, City were at least the equal of United, if not better in some seasons. So it, it's funny, you know, you, you tend to view history from the era that you live in at the time. And uh, I think people who are young now tend to see United as being always having been successful. It wasn't the case. And obviously it wasn't always the case with us as well. So uh, as with all football clubs, you know, you have ups and downs, 
uh, throughout your support in life. And to be honest, I wouldn't have it any differently. I, I, I look back on those days, even though we were terrible on the pitch, um, I had a lot of fun watching my team and I, I wouldn't change it. Absolutely. I remember seeing some videos on your Twitter of some of the, the limbs in the, um, you know, home end at, at Main Road and, and some of those, you know, um, moments that I guess, yeah, whether your team's winning or losing are, are like so special. I mean, for you personally, growing up, um, being a, a massive football fan, how did you kind of go from becoming a fan to sort of the game becoming, I guess, your career in a sense? Was there a moment where that, that changed? Well, I always knew because I was so obsessed with the game uh, right from being introduced to it that I, I wanted to be involved in football in some shape or form. Uh, and I knew from a very early age, 12, I think, or 13, that I wasn't going to be good enough to play professional football, certainly not for Manchester City, which is what I wanted. Uh, and I'll tell you how I found that out because I was actually playing for a Sunday league team at the time called Utrington Rovers uh, in the northwest of England. And uh, we actually had a a scout from Manchester City come to watch us and we knew he was coming down this day. A guy called Eric Mullander who became very famous um, and of course I, you know, I turned up and ran around like a blue ass fly for 90 minutes desperately trying to impress this guy. He wasn't interested in me. Um, he, he did actually sign our goalkeeper, a guy called Steve Crompton who uh, I'm still in touch with to this day and, and he played for the City youth team and won the FA Youth Cup in 1986 uh, but he never made it to the first team uh, dropped down the divisions, played a few games for Stockport and Carlisle and then drifted into non-league football. So it just goes to show, and he was the best player in our team by a mile. He was a fantastic goalkeeper, uh, but it just goes to show you how good you need to be. And, and I was nowhere near that. And I sort of knew that at 13. So then it became a matter of, well, if, I, if I'm not good enough to play it, how, how, do I, how do I stay involved in this game that I love? And, um, you know, I was, I was very much... Uh, into uh, reading the newspapers at the time. I was very politically aware very early. Um, and I listened to the radio, you know, big European games. Um, listened in particular to a guy called Brian Butler, who was my commentary hero, BBC Radio 2, as was back in the 80s. Uh, and so I think that was all, always in my head, even from that early age, that perhaps this was a, a potential avenue to go into, to, to continue my involvement with football. But... Um, really, I wanted to write. I had no designs on broadcasting at all. Uh, written journalism was, was my thing. And that's what I trained as. Uh, I did a, a postgrad course in uh, newspaper journalism and uh, really fell into, into broadcasting by accident and stayed with it for the rest of the journey. So that's, that's how it happened. Yeah, sounds like uh, an incredible journey. Obviously, a, a lot of us... Now you know, uh, now know you uh, since your move to Australia. So tell us about moving to Australia. What were your expectations of the country and in particular the football? Well, I didn't know anything about either, to be honest, because this all came about, in two, just to give you a little bit of the backstory, in 2001, I've been working for the BBC for nearly 10 years. And then I went over to a new channel in England called the ITV Sport Channel, which had been set up to... Uh, provide some competition for Sky Sports over there. Unfortunately, they didn't have a very good business plan. After 12 months, they went bankrupt. <laughs> so we were all out of work. I freelanced for a little while. Um, and then an old mate of mine that I'd worked with at the BBC called Rob Minchell um, said to me, they're looking for a commentator over here at SBS because uh, the previous guy, Paul Williams, wasn't very well. Um, 
And he, he said to me, you'd be perfect for it. He'd, he'd emigrated over here a few years earlier. He said, you'd be perfect for this. And I said, you know, they're not going to want me. They don't know me from Adam and I live on the other side of the earth. But he went on about it so much uh, that I sent a showreel and a CV over to SBS really to shut him up as much as anything else. Uh, and to my astonishment, um, Ken Ship, who was then the deputy uh, head of sports at SBS, got back in touch and said, we're interested, um, you know, would you like to come over to Australia? So I was, wow. <laughs> okay. So that's what I, I did. That's how it eventuated. Um, as to my expectations of the country and the football here, well, I'd only ever visited Australia for five days on holiday prior to emigrating. So I didn't know anything about the country. Uh, I read a few books and stuff before I came over. I read Johnny Warren's book, uh, Sheerless Wogs and, Wogs and Pufters, and uh, Ross Solly's shootout to try and sort of get a bit of a background into the football scene over here. But I think, you know, most migrants will tell you, you only really start to learn about a country's culture and certainly their football culture when you actually live there. So it was a learning curve that I started in 2003 and I'm, I'm probably still on it. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably rose to prominence in Australian kind of um, the Australian football scene um, off the back of 2006, um, calling the World Cup. I mean, what was that experience like calling games at, at the biggest uh, footballing event in the world for your adopted nation? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was amazing. I'd been to a couple of World Cups before, so the actual World Cup experience wasn't new for me, but... Um, to, to go and call games, and particularly of the magnitude uh, of Australia's matches, because of course, as we all know, the Socceroos hadn't been to the World Cup in 32 years. So I was very much aware of, of how big this was back in Australia. Um, so that, that puts a, bit, a little bit of extra pressure and responsibility on your shoulders. But I, I mean, I loved it. You know, I'd, I still love calling the Socceroos when I get the chance to do it. It's, uh, it's the highest honour in in our profession as a commentator to, to call the national team. Um, I never actually got the chance to call the English national team. I called a couple of under 21 games back in the day and uh, some other matches involving Northern Ireland and, and Wales, but, but never the English national team. So to call the Australian national team for an Australian audience at uh, an event as big as the World Cup was huge. Uh, and obviously, you know, having the privilege to be able to call not only their first goal at the World Cup, but also the first win uh, was was monumental for me. So it, it really, it, it helped my career, obviously, but more importantly than that, it's, it helped the game here. And I think that was the moment that we got liftoff, really. Although you could argue the Uruguay qualifier was, you know, equally big or, or if not bigger. And of course, I was fortunate enough to be able to call that as well. So... There were two massive moments, and that, along with the establishment of the A-League, uh, really set the template, not just for the game in this country, but uh, also my career here in Australia, which has you know, obviously lasted a lot longer than, uh, than I thought it was going to initially. Yeah, definitely. I think um, for Andrew and I, um, Germany 2006 was the first World Cup we watched, so um, your voice has always resonated with us. Uh, we have to talk about, about Kaiserslautern. Uh, your commentary on Australia v Japan is now obviously embedded in, within Australian football folklore. Was that call planned? I mean, how do you prepare for a game um, with so many possible outcomes? And obviously there was so much riding on it with, you know, hopefully Australia getting their first ever win and even just scoring their first ever World Cup goal. Well, the answer is, is that you can't uh, plan. You can't script a 90-minute commentary. You can have a line or two up your sleeve, 
which I certainly did for, for Tim Cale's first goal, because obviously that was, uh, as I said in the call, a landmark moment because it was Australia's first at a World Cup. But after that, you're on your own, basically. Um, you know, I had no idea that uh, from trailing 1-0 with eight minutes to go, Australia were going to turn it around with the help of a substitute that came on and became a superstar in the, in the, in the space of eight minutes. Um, so you can't plan for those eventualities. You just got to try and uh, reflect the emotion of, of the occasion as best you can and try and put it into context. You know, the narrative of, of what you're seeing as it un unfolds in a, in a thousand different ways. So um, a lot of it is instinctive. Um, you can have the odd line here or there planned, but uh, yeah, mainly it's off the top of your head and you just hope that you get it right. Hopefully I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember you um, posting some things on social media with your match notes um, for some mm. of those um, uh, famous games that you, you've called. I guess that's a really interesting insight into, I guess, how a commentator goes about it because I think a lot of the time we're listening, it feels like they're almost reading off a script. Um, and I think that's <laughs> probably a, a, you know, a big compliment to the commentator that, that it feels like that. I mean, it, it's a kind of dreaded question that, you know, I don't really want to ask because I you know, for a while, it did seem like Australia was not going to score that goal. It just felt like um, with the referee on the first goal, I mean, did you have another call or an, a few other lines ready for, you know, if, if the, um, the worst had happened and we hadn't got a result there? Um, yeah, I mean, I probably had a line for, you know, had Australia lost because you have to prepare for that eventuality. Um, but overall, no. In, in terms of the commentary notes, I mean, obviously they're, you know, they're the research that you do. Uh, it's the research you do before the game, which you have to do. And I still sort of say to young commentators who are doing it, you know, starting off in the game now, that your most important uh, bit is not necessarily the 90 minutes. It's the, the days proceeding into the game because you have to get, get your research right. You have to know everything possible or as much as you can about every single player, about every potential uh, eventuality, about the two teams, about the coaches, uh, about the stadium, everything. So really the 90 minutes, it's like training for a player during the week. You put in the hard work during the week and hopefully you get your rewards on the Saturday or whenever the game is. Uh, that's when you execute your, you know, your plan basically. Um, but you, you know, football is, it's not an exact science and it can change in a moment. So you have to be prepared for that. So you have to be ready and, uh, as I say, hopefully that particular day and quite a few since, I hope, I was. I very much think so. And I, I think um, what has always impressed me about your commentary and what I kind of wanted to ask about next was since moving into the AFC, um, Australia have, have gone all over the continent, um, a, a large continent with, you know, to, to be honest, a lot of teams with, with no household names. I mean, how do you go about preparing for a match like that where, you know, the, the general Australian footballing public would not know, I guess, any of the players that we're about to, to play against? Well, to me, and this is probably just my personality, but that's one of the joys of the job. I really like learning about new players uh, and researching them uh, because quite often, and I'll give you one example, when Australia went to play Kyrgyzstan, in 2015, and his name is still stuck in my head. Antonin, Anton, what's his name? Anthony Zelianukin. Um, and he was a, a winger that I sort of 
picked up because of my research before the game. He played in Russia. A lot of the you know, Kyrgyzstan players were domestic-based. But this guy had played in the Russian top division uh, and was known as a tricky winger. And I, I watched one or two you know, little clips of him on YouTube, and I thought, hmm, he looks quite handy. And he was. So, you know, that, that's when your, your research, and I think he came off the bench. So I said, you know, well, you've got to watch out for this guy. This guy's got a bit about him. He's got a good left peg and he can dribble past players and he's not frightened to take men on. And he did exactly that. Um, and that's, that's almost like your, your research, you know, coming into reality, which is fantastic. Um, so I enjoy that process and even finding out, <clears throat> excuse me, about, you know, the lesser known players because there's good stories about them as well, which you can, <clears throat> excuse me, impart to your audience. There was a centre-back from the same game called Daniel Tago, uh, not a very Kyrgyz name, and he was from Ghana. So obviously he'd been naturalised. What was his story? Um, and I actually did a, a phone interview with him pre, uh, prior to the game and wrote a story up on the Fox Sports website about him. And I think he was the son of a Ghanaian tribal king or something like that. It was a fascinating story. Uh, and I like all that because, you know, footballers, it's not just about what they do on the pitch in the 90 minutes, but they're also human beings with backstories. Um, and sport is, is a lot about human interest as well as, you know, that wonderful skill that we see on the pitch. And I enjoy that process. Yeah, for sure. Sounds like a very interesting process. And like you mentioned, going to Kyrgyzstan and stuff, sounds like um, it would have been an amazing experience. Um, wow. Moving <laughs> moving uh, towards talking more about the game in our own backyard, uh, what are the biggest things that you've personally noticed um, change in the game in the 15 years, almost 15 years since Germany? Uh, now it's 2020 and it feels like in Australia, we've moved backwards in many respects and it's obviously pretty disappointing to see. Yep, it is. Um, we've fallen a long way back and uh, we shouldn't have done. A lot of this damage has been self-inflicted. Uh, we haven't had a proper plan to take the game forward, which is hugely frustrating. We've had a lot of leaders who've looked very short term. Uh, a lot of leaders who've uh, looked too much to other sports and uh, paid homage to other sports too much, in my opinion. Uh, we've not been bold enough in striking our own narrative. We've not been brave enough to take on the media when they've attacked our game. Um, and of course, we've singularly failed to make the A-League a financially robust competition, which is a big problem. And over the next 12 months, they've got to fix that because quite simply, if they don't, there won't be a national professional competition. It's that serious. Um, so, you know, I'm probably one of the greatest examples of uh, what's happened to the game. You know, I lost my job at, at Fox Sports and uh, a lot of football journalists have lost their job right around the country. That's a damning indictment on the game's failure here. If you don't have a football media to cover the game, then that tells you a lot about the state that the game is in. Yeah, I guess we are coming to probably what we would consider a crossroads, um, as you mentioned. Um, my next question, I mean, just hearing you talk about it now, I mean, my next question was sort of about a second division, but it, it almost seems futile to be talking about something like a second division when really we are still in a limbo regarding our first division um, and making sure that stays alive. I mean, where would you then 
I guess, considering the circumstances, place um, ideas of, of those things like the second division and, and more expansion? Or at the moment, is it about consolidation? Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with the assumption that because the A-League struggling, we shouldn't have a second division. I actually think a second division would help the A-League. Uh, I think part of the biggest issue we have in this country is that we've got this massive football community and they're all hopelessly and horribly divided. Um, and a part of that is that there's this glass ceiling between the A-League and the rest of the game. How do we expect the rest of the game to be connected to the A-League if they can't get promoted into it? Um, I think it's it's something that's very, very necessary. I'm not saying we need it you know, now or even next season or even the season after, but a plan has to be put in place for it to become reality. I think there's a lot of ambition from clubs in the NPL. Could they afford it? I don't know. Um, let's find out, shall we? Uh, everybody says, well, what happens if they fall over? Well, then we find somebody else to replace them. What happens if the Mariners get relegated out of the A-League? Well, that's because they're not good enough to be in the A-League. If they're good enough to survive and financially strong enough and want to be a part of a second division to get promoted back to the A-League, well, then do it. That's what, that's what happens in the rest of the football world. We are, Despite the narrative here, I know we're a big country, we've got geographical problems, and there's other codes of football that dominate here. I get all that. I'm not saying it's easy. But we're not unique. We're still a football country with uh, a passionate base. And our biggest issue is that base is not connected to the peak. And we need to fix it. We need to fix it very quickly. Um, I think if we go along with a closed shop A-League, we will continue with a, a very fractured football community. And I don't think that's the way forward, personally. Yeah, it's really cool to hear um, your passion and your, um, I guess, disappointment with the game at the moment. But I think where uh, Andrew and I have uh, spoken about it and we've spoken to other people within the football community and we are all in agreement that, you know, we think a second division needs to happen, but it needs to be done when the time is right. Um, and as you just touched on there um, with football, you know, obviously being, it's the most played sport in Australia, but do you personally think uh, that it'll ever be the most watched? Um, obviously having to compete with the likes of the AFL the, and the NRL. No, but it doesn't have to be. I, I don't care about being number one, quite honestly, or even number two or three. I don't care what the number is. All I care is that football fulfills its potential. And at the moment, it's only just begun to scratch the surface of that potential for some of the reasons I've already outlined. Um, so we shouldn't worry about the other sports. I'm sick of hearing about the other sports, quite honestly. I have no interest in them. I know a lot of other people do. That's great. No problem. Personally, I just want football uh, to do the best it possibly can. And that means uh, the game of football providing a good product for its community, for football fans who want to watch football. I don't want Star Wars rounds. I don't want gimmicks or uh, mimicking rugby league state of origin or drafts like the AFL or salary caps. Let's construct a proper football ecosystem that football fans understand. There's more than enough football fans in this country. We know that. Because every time Socceroos play a big game or there's a grand final or a big blue or a big derby, Stadium's full. Those fans are there, but they are not connected enough on a week-by-week -week basis. That's why I think a second division would help, 
because it would give us a very strong narrative at the bottom of the A-League as well as at the top. Um, and basically, we need to play in smaller stadiums, on better pitches, and give football fans what they want, which is an authentic football competition, not a, a cheap imitation of the other sports. Yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick and I are both um, A-League members and, and we'd Good. drop about everything to, to go to any Melbourne victory game. Um, Amy Park for us is, is, a, is not only a, a place where we, we go to watch football, but we go with a, the same group of, of people every week. Right. I think I, I can look into the future and I can see us still doing that in 10, 20 years. And for us, that's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a sense of belonging. And whilst we obviously can't compete on um, the quality of football with, with things you can watch on TV, um, I guess for us, we find that there's, there's nothing better than, than actually going to the stadium. And I guess kind of what I wanted to ask you and, and why I, you know, loved seeing some of your footage of, of Man City back from the 70s and 80s is, you know, we obviously have a football, um, a, a, fa a fan culture, but it's often around the EPL, the Champions League. I mean, why do you think it's important for, for Australians to, yeah, to, to engage in those products and to watch that football? Um, but why is it important to actually go to your stadium and, and every week and, and follow a team that, of where you're born? Well, I mean, that's part of the reason, you know, it's, it's your local team. Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying you can't have a Premier League team as well or a team in La Liga or the Bundesliga. Um, if you're a football fan, why wouldn't you want to go and watch your local team? Uh, that doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. And this, this argument that, oh, well, the standard's not as good as the Premier League and I can watch the Premier League at home. Well, here's a little uh, secret for you. The rest of the world can watch the Premier League as well. But they still go out and watch their local team because that's where they live and they've got passion for their local team as well. Um, if we're just going to go down the road and say, oh, well, we just give it up and we just watch the Premier League. Well... If all the other 200 countries around the world did that, it'd be a very boring sport, wouldn't it? It'd be like the AFL or the Rugby League because they only have one competition. Well, the great thing about football is we have 200 competitions. We have cup competitions. We have European competitions, Asian competitions, World Cups, European Championships, Asian Cups, etc., etc. That variety is the spice of, of our footballing life. And part of that uh, variety is our local product. It doesn't have to be as good as the Premier League. It's never going to be as good as the Premier League. Let's be honest. It doesn't matter. And I always I, I say to people this, okay, my team these days, Man City, it's you know, one of the big uh, clubs of the world. It's got a lot of money. But I went to watch my team in the third division. And let me tell you, the football was terrible. We were awful. Did it stop me going? No because that was my team. It didn't matter because my identity was wrapped up in the club, the badge, the shirts, the history, the traditions of my club and my family going to watch that club. That's what we have to build here. And a lot of people here also believe that the short term hit is you know, big name marquees. Now, I'm not against that. I think they help uh, in a short term sense, but it's not about the player who wears the shirt. It's the badge on the front of it. That's the connection that we need to build. Now, you boys have got it with Melbourne Victory. That's brilliant. Victory have probably done it better than any other club in the country, in my opinion. Sydney, good as well. The Wanderers, to a certain extent, yeah. Um, after that, we're probably struggling a wee bit. But 
It's about building that local connection to your club so you will turn up, rain or shine, win or lose every week. It's not about whether you win. It's not about whether you lose. It's not about whether you play sexy football or whether you've got Alessandro Del Piero playing for you or not. It's your club and you've got passion for it. And that's what we need to build here and we've not done it well enough. Yeah, definitely. I think Andrew and I can relate to what you just touched on there um, with talking about Man City. Obviously, Melbourne victory had a terrible season in comparison to what we've been used to but um we were still there every single week um, that we could we had we had an away trip planned but coronavirus um got in the way of that um so we've we've focused quite a lot on fan culture on our part on our podcast hearing um stories and experiences of people within the game Uh, but mainly they've been fans our age what's it like having been a football fan for decades and what has changed most in the game from when you're a little boy at main road to where you are today quite a lot <laughs> um when i used to go with my dad i think the entrance fee was 15 pence uh to go and sit in the plat lane and uh, behind the goal um and then i went and stood on the kipax on the, the big open terrace well, it wasn't open out of roof on it actually but it was a big terrace Um, So it's certainly got a lot more expensive. Um, It's become a lot more sanitised, to be honest, even in the Premier League. Um, You know, all-seater stadiums, we all understand why they did it, because of the Hillsborough disaster. And it was probably the right thing to do at the time. But technology has moved on. Uh, They have safe standing now in, in the Bundesliga in particular. And I think England needs to return to that to get some of that atmosphere back inside uh, the stadiums. The Western Sydney Wanderers have it actually at uh, a Bangwest Stadium, which is great. Um, so a lot of things have changed. Obviously the game has become a lot more globalized. You know, the, the first City team that I remember watching was made up, I think of nine Englishmen and a couple of Scotsmen and that was it. Now it's, you know, countries from all over the globe. So it's become much more globalized. Um, is it better? In some ways, but, you know, you always hanker after your youth and, uh, you know, I, I do miss, I miss the old city. I miss going standing on the terrace, even though it wasn't very nice at times. And we got a lot of police harassment and, you know, occasionally there was a bit of trouble, but there was that tribalism that I think has been lost a little bit, uh, certainly in England. And it was something that we were actually building here in Australia. And that's why I'm so angry at, at, how it's been allowed and almost encouraged to evaporate. You know, the active fans, particularly at Victory and Western Sydney Wanderers, Sydney FC, um, one or two other clubs to a certain extent, we were building that real tribalism, that real passion and that noise around the stadium, which makes football so intoxicating. And we killed it, stone dead, through trying to appease the mainstream media who don't give a stuff about our game anyway. Where's it got us? Not very far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> clearly you're a football fan at heart, a football tragic, if I can, you know, go absolutely. as far as saying that. Do you, I mean, are you, is your place, do you feel in, in the terraces or is it up in the commentary box? I mean, do <laughs> you, what, where would you, you know, choose to watch a game if you, if you had the choice? Obviously you had the um, privilege of being able to commentate um, Manchester City during, during the Champions League just gone by. Um, do yeah. you have a preference as to whether you're behind the mic or on the, on the terraces? 
Um, when it's my team playing Manchester City, I prefer to be on the terraces or in the stands these days. Um, that's my place with my team. Um, for the rest, obviously I get the best seat in the house and it's my job, it's, it's what I love to do and I wouldn't change any of it. Um, but when it comes to Man City, I'm, I'm still a fan. That's not to say that I can't do it. And obviously you just mentioned, I, I call them in the Champions League uh, and you have to set that aside for, for that 90 minutes. And, and people find this strange, but it's actually quite easy to do because the job is so, you have to be so focused for that 90 minutes. You almost disconnect yourself from that fandom. And obviously it helps that I've, you know, I've lived in Australia for many years now. So I'm, I'm a bit disconnected from City anyway. Um, I remember calling some City games earlier on in my career when I was at the BBC for, for a radio station there, Five Live, and found that quite tricky, particularly at the old Main Road. I didn't feel as though I belonged in the press box at Main Road. Uh, I was uncomfortable there. Uh, my place at Main Road was was cheering my team on as a fan. But, you know, things change, and obviously I'm, I'm a fair bit older now as well, so you do mellow with age, and you become a little bit less... Um, fervent but uh, not much let me tell you um particularly on derby day but uh yeah it's it's an interesting question and as i say I, th I think for most of the games i love being in the commentary position if that's what i'm there to do that particular day but when it comes to city that's my team i'm a fan absolutely and i think you know we can hear that and as you said you know we might be um get a bit more fragile with age and might not be able to hack it on the on the terraces but um you know, it, hey, I didn't say I was fragile. I just well, you, know, <laughs> you can come down to a, a Melbourne victory game with us when you're not in the commentary box. Um, I'd love to. Yeah, well, please, you'd be, be more than welcome. I mean, you must have you've, you've obviously seen so much football in your life. Would have seen so many incredible games, um, not just obviously in the Australian game, but um, I guess all over the world. Uh, is, do you have a favourite game um, or, or even a favourite call? Um, that you've done that, that stands out? I mean, there must be lots to choose from. Um, and I think, you know, Nick and I probably have our favourites of of what you've called. But for you, is there something that, that sticks out? Look, I think in, you know, in, in an Australian sense, obviously the World Cup games um, were, were huge. I enjoyed those very much. A lot of the grand finals that I've, I've been privileged enough to call um, stand out, those big games and big moments, big blues, derbies all that sort of stuff. But there, there are other games from earlier on in my career that people in Australia probably, you know, not too familiar with or, or weren't even aware that I called. And they're sort of, they're landmark moments in your own career. Um, the first game I ever called in its entirety was a Premier League game between Chelsea and Blackburn Rovers, which was, talk about being dropped in at the deep end, that was 1993. Uh, so that stands out. Um, three years later, I, I did a, an FA Cup final between Manchester United and Liverpool. Now, for a young kid <clears throat> growing up in England, you know, calling a cup final at Wembley, that's pretty special. Even though the two teams that I didn't particularly care for, United and Liverpool, but uh, to, to call a game of that magnitude at Wembley was, was very special. Um, there, were other, there are other games. I, I did an African Cup of Nations in 1998 in a country called Burkina Faso. Um, not necessarily the football stands out, but the, the whole experience of being in a very unfamiliar part of the world and, and calling games in, in sort of tricky circumstances. They're, they're great memories. Uh, I call the European Championship final 1996. Czech Republic against Germany. Uh, that was very special. 
the Asian Cup final 2007, Iraq against Saudi Arabia, that fantastic story of the Iraqi team lifting the Asian Cup. So there's lots and lots of games. Um, and I'll, I'll pick one very random one out for you just to finish off this particular question. And again, it's, it's a game of zero significance to anybody in Australia. It's actually a match between Swansea City and Blackpool in 1994. Um, and it was at the old Vetch field at Swansea. And I was up on a gantry out in the open and it was very windy and we were swaying in the gantry and things were falling off. And the Swansea fans beneath us were not happy because they could hear us and they were leading 4-2. And Blackpool, which was the team that we were covering for the local radio station I was working for, came back to draw with two goals in stoppage time from a guy called Neil Mitchell. And of course I went ballistic in commentary and the Swansea fans started pelting us with, with bottles and all, all sorts of things. And we had to stay up there for about three quarters of an hour afterwards so we could get down safely. So, that, you know, there, there are things like that that sort of stick in your head, even though they, in terms of the actual game and the context of the match, they mean nothing. But uh, they're, they're, they're all very special memories in their, own, in their own way. And, you know, if I never call another game of football again, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to, but... Uh, if I never do, I've, I've got a lifetime of memories that will uh, keep me fairly content, I hope. <laughs> Listening to all of those um, stories, I'm sure Andrew um, shares his envy of you, other than uh, getting pelted at uh, by bottles. <laughs> um, but to finish well, that wasn't off... the worst of it, let me tell you. I'm much worse <laughs> than that. <laughs> Don't want to hear about those ones. Um, to finish off, um, it's been awesome to talk, but we've just got a quick fire minute for you. Okay. Um, there's 10 or 11 either ors, uh, no justification. We just want to hear what comes to mind first. Um, so we'll get stuck into it. Uh, Messi or Ronaldo? Uh, Messi. Champions League or the World Cup? Uh, As a City well, fan, probably the Champions League. Well, as an England fan, mm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably Champions League. Probably the Champions League. Cool. Uh, Pele or Maradona? Pele. Wembley or the Maracanã? <laughs> uh, wow, that's tough. And I've been to both. Oh, wow. Because uh, Wembley's very special for an Englishman. Yeah. Now that it's been rebuilt, it's a little bit different. I don't know about that one. I'd sort of be veering towards the American R, but that almost seems like treason for an Englishman to say. <laughs> Can I have Sorry. both on that one? Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Uh, Harry Kuehl or Mark Viduka? Mark Viduka. 4-3-3 or 4-4-2? <laughs> oh, dear. I'll get in trouble if I say 4-4-2, won't I? Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably in the modern day, 4-3-3. Uh, R9 or Ronaldinho? Ronaldinho. Yeah, he was magic. Total football or tiki-taka? Total football. I grew up in a different era. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mile Yedinak or Aaron Moy? <laughs> um... Not for facial hair, but just for, you know. <laughs> not for all. Not yeah. for any hair. <laughs> Miller, you have Wow. Goose or Ange? 
Um, we um, we interviewed Daniel Garb and he uh, struggled big time. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say you've done the you've had the same reaction to the same to the same questions. <laughs> Ange. Wow. Hus, just hus. And the last one we've got, um, we added this one for you: Peter Drury or Martin Tyler? John Champion. True, you did mention him earlier, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you that one. We'll let you off with that one. Um, John's the John Champion is the best English-speaking commentator on the planet. He is okay. tremendous without peer. Yeah, I, I I enjoy um I also enjoy Guy Mowbray. I, I find him he's very good. He's had these, these are all these are all guys that I grew up with in commentary terms and, and work with at the BBC and ITV. They're terrific blokes. Peter as well, incidentally, is a smashing fella. Um, and they're very very good practitioners of their craft. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um when it comes to Australian football, um you know I think. We all look up to you as, as, and it's just, it's been incredible hearing your actual voice um, on, uh, on this interview. Um, where, where does your um, future lie in the game? I guess it's a pretty um, uncertain time. Um, are you, um, any plans for your sort of next little bit? That's a good question. Um, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, I obviously joined Optus for, for the Champions League. Um, you know, there is a possibility maybe at some uh, point in the near future I, I could work for them again. Um, where the A-League ends up after the next year with Fox, I don't know. Maybe I could, you know, potentially be involved in that. Um, I could be going back to England. Um, that's a possibility as well. So at the moment, I genuinely do not have a clue as to what uh, the next year has in store. I'll keep you posted. Well, it's a, it's a crazy time. I mean, if, uh, if our offer uh, for, for Melbourne victory are uh, coming to uh, watch in the stands with us, that still stands. So uh, if, um, Optus going to give you a buzz. Uh, we will um, probably can't uh, pay you what Optus do, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. Pay you in goals and- <laughs> No problem. Take- um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I think um, and I um, are both uh, just just believers um, that that one day football is going to reach its potential. Um, and I, I think through people like you and hearing what you've got to say, I think hopefully this has started to become a dialogue, um, and it's started to become something that we can put into motion. Um, because I think it's going to be a, a beautiful day, and when football is firing on all cylinders in this country. The Socceroos lifting the World Cup. Um, you know, I think I think we have to dream. Um, and and I think um, thanks well, to people like you, I think we can. Let's hope you don't let's hope you don't have grey hair like me by the time it happens, eh? Oh well we know I mean it's obviously not a, a um an overnight fix, but yeah, we'd obviously love to um have things uh yeah going. Um so yeah, thank you very much for um, pleasure, pleasure. yeah being with us and and I think he might have just cut out then for a second. But, um, yeah, thank you uh, lots for your time, Simon. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we hear your voice on our computers or TVs in the not-too-distant future. I hope so too. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Simon. Cheers.